Hi everyone, I'm speaking to you from sunny Hamburg where we are here live at the next show 2021. It's amazing to be back here in person. I just spoke about the metaverse on stage, but I'm here now to record another episode of the next show for you. I know many of you are viewers and you've seen it before, and I'm here with a very special person who's also just spoken on the stage, the wonderful Timandra Harkness. Timandra, hello, how are you? I'm very good, how are you? That is great to hear. I am fantastic, thank you. I very much enjoyed your talk. How, how did you find being on a stage after all this time oh, in lockdown? It's, it's wonderful, isn't it? it? I have done some, like you, I think, some talks over Zoom, through a screen, but not being able to see the audience's faces just means it's... You have no idea. Are people falling asleep? Are they saying, yeah, we know this, go on faster? Are they laughing? Are they crying? Are they hating you? There's no way to know. So at least I could see today if people look bored. Exactly. That is the thing. And we've both done a lot. I know I have, and I'm sure you have done a lot of emoting into our laptop screens. I'd say my laptop screen has been the primary recipient of my, my enthusiasm and my passion for my subject matter across the last 18 months. And it's just not the same. You don't get anything back from your laptop screen. As you say, you don't really know if the people behind it are listening, if they know this, if they don't. So, it, yeah, I'm the same. It was great to be back in front of an audience. Now, we are going to talk about big data and personalization and the social and, dare I say, even spiritual impacts of that that you talked about so well and so fascinatingly on stage. Before we dive into that, though, just give the listeners a sense of your background, where you're coming from all this from, because your background is fascinating. It spans, as we heard, the sciences and the arts. So tell us a bit about that and where you're coming from all this from. I suppose my career has been a, a bit of a meander. I first went to university and studied film and theatre and art. And in fact, I worked in theatres for a long time. I did comedy. I did circus really badly for a while. I realised I was never going to be a wonderful trapeze artist, so I stopped, but I did comedy. And then through that, I got interested again in science and maths, which I'd done at school. So then I went back and studied part-time. I studied mathematics and statistics. So I kind of came a circular route back to being interested in maths and data and statistics. And I first got interested... About maybe 10 years ago, I noticed that statistics were everywhere in the newspapers and infographics and graphs and charts. And all the people that I knew actually hated mathematics were really excited because there was a, a percentage in the newspaper. So I thought this was really odd because I, I like mathematics. I get excited when I see numbers and graphs. But I knew all these people hated maths. So why did they love statistics so much? I thought... There's something cultural happening here. And then big data came along, and I thought, okay, this looks similar. And again, lots of people I know don't like maths are really excited about data. Now, I think there's some clever things happening here because I can see some of the maths going on, but why do these other people think it's so amazing? Is it just hype? Is it really going to change how we do things? And then I, I suppose the answer is a bit of both, really. It is... There is a lot of hype, and it's also changing what we can do. So I kind of came this very circular route back to being interested in statistics and data. Yeah, amazing journey from trapeze artistry 
to big data. But it, it, in a, I mean, it is a surprising journey, but in a way it's not because I think it's becoming ever more clear how we need new and outside perspectives. And of course, we're going to talk about all this new and outside perspectives on what technology is doing to our societies. And those perspectives are often not being offered by the people closest to it and the people who are, you know, developing the technologies and developing the data personalization. So, it, yeah, in a way, it's not entirely surprising. And it's certainly very welcome that a former trapeze artist is helping us to get a grip on where we're heading. Now, you stepped into this by writing a book, Big Data Does Size Matter, which is a brilliant title. Tell us about that book and how, well, tell us about it. And let's also talk about how it was a stepping stone to where you're at now and the talk you gave today, which we'll come on to. I, as I said, I got interested in data and big data because I could see that it was a cultural phenomenon, if you like. And I wanted to find out, is this because it's really practically going to change everything? So I started looking into it more and more. I made a radio program. I was writing and researching. And I thought, yes, this is really important, but most of the people I know are too intimidated to talk about it because they think, oh, I don't understand computers. I don't understand maths. I, I can't have a conversation about this. So I wanted to write a book that was for anybody who'd heard the phrase and mm. thought, I can tell this is important, but I just don't know enough even to ask the questions. So it was designed to take people really from the first question, what is data? Right through how big data works, what people are doing with it, through to some of the big social questions about privacy, about whether it takes away your autonomy, balances of power, and all those things, which I think are quite familiar now. And I wanted to call it the slightly jokey title, partly because it it said to people, this is not going to be too serious. This is not one of those books that's blue with the cover all covered in ones and zeros that you have to have a computer science degree to even read. This is designed for anyone who reads a newspaper. And, but also, of course, the, I, I don't know how this, much this translates, but you say to an English speaker, big data, does size matter? They're likely to answer, no, it's what you do with it that counts because it's a bit of a double entendre. And I think that's also true of data. Like, yes, the fact we have a lot of data is important, but actually the question is what you do with it and for whose benefit do you do it and how intelligently do you apply the knowledge that you get from it. Interesting. Now, you were writing this, you were prescient, you were ahead of your time because you were writing this, as you said, at a time when this wasn't really at the top of most people's agenda. Since then, we've lived through a lot. We've saw in our country Brexit and Cambridge Analytica, this big scandal about the data-fueled targeting of political advertising. Have you been aware of a big sea shift in people's attitudes to this? I mean, when you were writing it originally, I'm guessing you had to explain to a lot of people what this book was about. These days, my sense is that you wouldn't have to. Is that, does that align with what you found? Definitely. And it's interesting that you raise the whole Cambridge Analytica thing, because when I first wrote the book, I wrote it in 2015 came out spring 2016, uh, so ahead of the Brexit vote and the Trump vote. And in the book, I said, well, one of the uses that data is put to is the way politicians communicate with us. They collect a lot of data on us. That's how they do their campaigning. They try and find the voters that they need to target and what those voters would be interested in, and they target those voters. So this is a part of the whole 
uh, data gathering thing. And nobody really picked up on that. Nobody cared at all. Nobody was interested. Uh, there had been some articles, in fact, in newspapers like The Guardian and some um, magazines in America about how Obama had brilliantly used data to win his two elections and all the data targeting and how they'd used people's Facebook data to target their friends. And everybody who was writing about it said, isn't this wonderful? Because they all loved Obama. So this was great. He's so clever. He's using all this data to target people. And then in 2016, a few people said, we've discovered this terrible thing that they use data to target people and that's why they voted for Trump and that's why they voted Brexit. How can this be allowed? And I'm there in the corner going, it's nice that you've caught up with this because I have been saying for a while that this is not a good way to do politics. Politics should be about debating the issues in public, not targeting someone with an advert. But don't try and pretend that this is new, that somebody's just invented this. This has been going on at least a decade. Uh, so I don't think it's good. I think it's a terrible debasement of politics, which should be all about you, you bring your principles out in public and you debate them and... You, 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 you have the same debate with everybody. You don't just target individuals with what you think will work on them. But I did get frustrated that people acted like this had just been invented, that this company, Cambridge Analytica, had just invented this stuff, where, in fact, I think they had a great sales operation. They pretended they had this magical knowledge, but they, if you talk to any of the people involved in the political campaigning, they say, no, they, they talked a good game, but they didn't actually bring anything new to the table and they probably had no impact on the results. But I do think it raised it in people's awareness. I think people suddenly started saying, oh, hang on. So when I see adverts on Facebook, Facebook has chosen those adverts for me because they think I will be a good target for those adverts. And I think that added to the whole move towards people caring more about their privacy, which had probably started with the Edward Snowden revelations about how governments to collect our data and follow us around. So, yeah, I think people are much more... People care much more about what happens to their data. But also, I think a lot of people are quite fatalistic and just say, oh, well, what can you do? You know, the companies have it now. Everything is out there. Anyway, I put everything on Instagram. So what can you do? That's just the world. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, we have... A, I think we're developing a sense of this already from what you've said. But And I'm sure it's the same for you. I mean, I'm... You know, I follow a lot of technology people online. They follow me and I'm exposed to two quite wildly different sort of a, a two polarized sets of views on data personalization and and that issue as part of the big technology issue more broadly. And on the one hand, you have people saying, you know, this is. Um, appalling and it's, it's dragging us towards a world we don't want to live in and it's surveillance capitalism and all of that. And on the other side, you have people saying, you know, that's nonsense, this is brilliant, it's convenient, all these people are doing is sending you messages that you're interested in rather than messages that you're not that interested in, which is what you used to get, what's wrong with that? It feels like there is that polarity. I'm exposed to it a lot on Twitter. And sometimes, to be perfectly honest... I'm not entirely sure where I fit into that discussion. I, I, you know, temperamentally strongly tend towards thinking that there's lots about this that is not okay. I'm very suspicious of the people on the other end who want to tell us that it's all perfectly fine. 
where do you feel like you stand on that spectrum? I mean, I know the listeners will, yeah, the listeners will be thinking, where exactly, you know, what, is, what exactly is Tamandra Harkness telling us about how good or bad this is? Where do you feel you stand on that spectrum? Or do you think that that's now some, something of an outdated way of looking at it or, or a not useful way of looking at it? No, I think it is a useful way of looking at it. And I think, like you, I tend towards saying this is not all good and there are things about this world that we don't have to accept and we shouldn't accept and we shouldn't put up with. Because, I mean, one thing is I think there's a great asymmetry of power between people who have a lot of information on everybody and people like you and me as individuals who really only know about ourselves and maybe a few people close to us. Uh, and that asymmetry of information, of data, mm. does put a lot of power in the hands of the people with all the data. And that's not very transparent either because we don't always know how that data is being used to try and target and influence us. But at the same time, I think there's also a danger in being too fatalistic about what technology can do and saying, oh, well, look, we're all helpless because we're just manipulated and the people with the data and the targeting can make us do anything they want. And so, you know, we are, we are just helpless pawns in the hand of technology because I think that, that actually feeds a sense of helplessness that actually makes us more helpless if we throw up our hands and say, oh, the technology is in charge. Because there's a lot of things where technology isn't in charge. I had, only last week, in fact, I was interviewing somebody for my next book uh, who worked on a lot of the American Democrat campaigns as their data science person. So he was actually in charge of finding who are the voters that we need to target to persuade them to vote for our candidate, who are the voters that we need to motivate to get out and vote. They're, we know they're on our side, but we need to make sure they actually get there and vote. And how do we reach them with the right message that will have the effect that we want? And I said, you know, doesn't it worry you that you are manipulating people without really their knowing what's going on by sending them targeted messages? And he said, well, you know, I say to people, are, are you capable of saying no thank you to a college student who knocks on your door to say, will you vote for us? Are you capable of getting a bit of direct mail campaigning and putting it in the bin? Yes, you are. So you're equally capable of resisting these messages. And I have a lot of sympathy for that because by the time you're an adult in this world, you've had a lot of practice resisting adverts. Right? If you couldn't resist an advert... You, you would not survive in this world. You'd have spent all your money by the time you'd walk down the street. And uh, so, you know, human society is about trying to persuade each other to do things or not to do things or to join with some project you've got or to not join in someone else's project. That's, that is the whole of human society, really. You can do that digitally, and I don't think it's entirely different. But one thing that does worry me is that the more we experience the world as individuals through technology, the less balancing we get from ordinary social interactions. So the more susceptible we are to just experiencing everything as an individual with the sense that we're helpless and we don't know anything. And I think that is a really big part of the problem. I mean, for example, in the during COVID, a lot of people, not, not everybody was at home, a lot of people still had to go to work, thank you, drive buses, work in hospitals, empty the bins. But a lot of people spent a lot of time at home on the internet and 
and they became more susceptible, I think, to conspiracy theories or to just being very frightened and and to things where if they had just been able to go to a bar or a cafe and sit with their friends, if they had said, I don't know, you know, Bill Gates is trying to inject a microchip into you. It's not a vaccine. It's a microchip. And their friend would say, look, man, you've just come in here with your smartphone. That's got a microchip in that knows everything about you. Why would Bill Gates bother to inject you? Now, go to the bar. It's your round. And then you, you have a, a kind of steadying influence of other people. But if you're alone and relating only through the Internet, I think you lose that. that and that does worry me. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, yeah, I, the same. It worries me. And I think that the impacts of that kind of atomization that we've seen in lockdown yeah. and the way that lockdown has helped the big technology companies sort of wrap their hands around people, when you combine those two things, as you say, that gets very scary. I, I mean, I'm fascinated. You know, there's an idea I've long been fascinated by that's at the kind of outer edges of all this. And it was made famous by... Um, Yuval Harari, when he wrote the, the follow-up to Sapiens, Homo Deus, I think it was called, and he said, you know, we're going to emerge into a world where algorithms know you better than you know yourself. You know, this, this, that phrase became very famous for a while. And he, he raised the question, well, he said, in a world where algorithms know you better than you know yourself, these data-fueled algorithms, our society falls apart. Because why, for example, should you bother to vote? How does voting make sense anymore when an algorithm, a data-fueled algorithm, when Facebook knows who you would like to vote for better than you know yourself? And I can't help feeling that that makes perfect sense as long as you believe that human beings are nothing more than a sort of collection of their expressed tastes and interests and past behaviours, all as instantiated in their personal data online you know that a human being is nothing more than their facebook data essentially it just and and it's quite typical of our age because it denudes it strips politics of its ethical component you know politics delivers or is supposed to deliver a vision of the human good life that people can respond to ultimately on an ethical level and an algorithm that knows all about your data and your facebook data cannot respond to that. Politics is supposed to speak to the part of us that those things cannot capture. And it just feels so typical of our age that we've forgotten that part of what being human is. Do you know what I mean? Are you sure you haven't read my last book? Yeah. That's, and I, that's absolutely, and yes. absolutely what and it's this about. Is, this, yes. is where, this is where I'm going to, because your new book is, I'm glad you say that, because your new book is The Personalised Century. And listening to you talking about it on stage reminded me of that thought about Yuval Harari and his very famous thought. So talk to us about The Personalised Century, your new book, and also about, you know, the big question that hangs over this conversation, what we should do about this world, where, as you say, not everything about big data and what's being done with it and the impacts that that is having, not everything about that is okay. Is that the police listening in on our conversation? We're here to arrest you for questioning. If you can't hear it, listeners, there is a siren outside. Perhaps you could hear it, but no, he's—they've gone to catch someone who's in real trouble. We are—we remain safe. Um, but yeah, the personalised century and what we should do next. As big a question as that is. Well, I guess the new book picks up on where the last book left off because by the end of writing the last book, I thought. The, the kind of the most interesting and salient thing that's coming out of this is this ability to capture data on each of us 
build, if you like, a virtual profile of each of us, a data profile, and then target things to that. And, and as you were just saying, it's, that is not a person, it's a collection of all the data about a person that doesn't have its own independent thoughts, but it's a, it's a kind of facsimile uh, that you can target things to. And, and I was looking at that, but because I took so long thinking about it, several other people wrote very good books just about how that works. Uh, and in some detail, I thought, oh, well, that's good. I don't need to write the book about how it works. But by this time, I'd become very interested in the why. Why do we live in this world where everything is targeted to us? And obviously, there are very sensible answers, like we use it because it's convenient, because we don't have to, we don't have to carry a railway timetable about. We can enter into an algorithm. I'm here, and I want to go here at this time, and it will just give us the answer relevant to us. And then there is the fact that of course, people can make money out of it because for advertisers, if they know they're advertising things that I am likely to be interested in buying, then they're, they're going to get more response for their adverts. I mean, for me, for example, I'm always entertained. Twitter decided that I was a man, so I get a lot of adverts for beard care products. Uh, but I'm not going to buy any beard care products, however many adverts I see, because I don't have a beard. Uh, but... For Twitter to allocate beard care products adverts to men, people they think are men, is completely sensible because hardly any women and children have beards. Uh, you're much more likely to have a beard if you're a man, so that's a very sensible targeting decision. So, you know, in that sense, it's very practical. But I actually started to think, you know, we know more and more about how this works, and yet we continue to go along with it. So I just feel there's something about society that makes us like the idea that we are being profiled and targeted. And I think it comes back to what you were saying about the idea, which I think is a fantasy, by the way, but the idea that data and the algorithm can know us, can know who we truly are. Because we live in a world where we feel more and more insecure about who we truly are. And yet at the same time, it's a world that values this idea of being the authentic self, being the authentic person that you are more and more. That today, if you lived a life that was you know, physically comfortable, you were well, your family was healthy, you had enough money, you were secure, but you didn't really feel you knew who your inner self was, people would say, oh, but you can't really be happy, can you? It's not, it's not a satisfying life. And because of that, I think it's a special kind of insecurity we have today that is around this idea of identity, that we, we're all told all the time it's very important to know your identity and know who you truly are. But because a lot of us are not sure about that, because it feels a bit arbitrary, because we have so many choices, you know, we don't have to be the person that our parents or grandparents were. We can reinvent ourselves. We can, we can have the kind of relationships we want with whoever we want. We can live where we want. We can do the kind of jobs we want. So we kind of choose who to be. But that makes it feel a bit, oh, have we made the right choice? Could I have chosen to be somebody else equally? So we constantly need the world to reflect us back to ourselves even when that's not even another human. Because we all want to be recognised by other humans. We all want another human to see us as we really are. Because then we feel that we have a meaningful connection. But I think we're so insecure now that even if it's a machine that recognises us, even if it's an algorithm that says, I am targeting you with these adverts because you are particularly artistic or discerning or because you, know, you, you went to this beautiful place and you said how much you liked it, we just get that little feeling of, oh, 
yes, no, that's me. I'm, I feel reassured about who I am. And that's why I think we live in this world. Because, yes, there's lots of practical reasons and there's lots of business reasons why people would target us. But I think it feeds a psychological lack that we have that we want to have our identity recognised externally and reflected back to us. We want to be able to express who we are and have that recognised and affirmed and reflected back. And that's an endless project. I mean, no machine can ever give you enough recognition of who you truly are to completely satisfy you. So it's a brilliant business model because we will just keep going back for more because we'll never completely be secure in our identity. And I find this set of ideas absolutely fascinating. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's, it, you know, it feels to me, you talk about this, this psychological lack we have. Um, and you mentioned earlier also, you know, the, 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 the diffusion of, of sort of atomization and slight craziness that comes when, you know, you're, you go and see your friends and they sort of calm you down and they talk to you about X, Y, Z. It feels to me <laughs> that the... That essentially, I mean, if you want to take a historical perspective on this, it feels to me that a big part of what you're saying is that modernity has uprooted people and stripped away from them the things that traditionally granted them identity, a sense of place, a small community, probably living close to your family. They were the things that told you who you were and reflected who you were back to you. But now, modernity has stripped that away from, from, from many of us, for most of us. We live in huge cities. We don't know our neighbours. We're presented with endless choice. So we feel that we can choose who we are rather than essentially being told who we are by circumstance. And that feels very liberating, but it also generates this huge sense of identity. And it's not an so, identity crisis, sorry. And it's not hard to see a connection between that and you know, all the identity politics and how contested that has become recently. Uh, so it just feels a great trick of modernity to uproot us in that way, to strip away from us traditional identity and then find ways of selling identity back to us. And now this very special way of selling it back to us, which is data-targeted ways of selling it back to us. Um, I, think that's, I think that's broadly right, except the way you've described it makes it sound like it was a great plan all along. Uh, and I, I don't think there is such a thing as modernity, which has a plan. I think it's more a case of that's, that is how history has progressed or unraveled. But I think you really put your finger on the contradiction there because it is liberating. I mean, it's, I, I have had immensely more freedom in my life than my, say, my grandma, who grew up in a particular working class area of Grimsby, where you know, her relatives worked on the docks. She had... You know, very few options in life, really. Uh, she, she married somebody local. She had three kids. She, the only time my mum's parents ever went abroad, they went abroad once, and we took, me and my mum took them on a trip on a boat for the day. And they lived the rest of the time, her whole life, in the same area where she grew up. So, you know, I really value the fact I've had so much more freedom than that generation had. I think that's a, that's a wonderful thing. And that people really can explore the different options that they have, the different lives they could lead. Uh, and that does mean being different people because the life that you lead changes you as a person and so you become a different person. All that I think is very positive. So it's this kind of, it's this dilemma. 
can we hang on to that freedom, the liberation, the choice, but regain that sense of belonging, that sense of community, that sense of being part of a wider shared humanity? That gives you strength and solidity. And I mean, solidarity, I think, is, is a word I would like to bring back and use more. And we had glimpses of that in COVID, especially at the beginning. I think there was a great upsurge of caring for each other and helping each other out. I remember in the UK, there was such an upsurge of volunteers that the official body that was meant to be allocating them couldn't keep up. They just, <laughs> we, we had a massive upsurge of community feeling. And I feel that was rather squandered uh, by the way that the government handled things myself. But it's a sign that we are still capable of that given the opportunity, we can still band together and do things and help each other out. But I think we consciously need to say that's something that we value and we're going to deliberately try and build that, but try and work together to find a way where you can have that cohesion and solidarity and yet hang on to the freedom to be yourself and to find out who you could be if your life goes in some direction or other. So my final question, I suppose, is and, and you've hinted at an answer to this. Are you hopeful? I mean, for the decade ahead, for the years ahead, do you think we will find ways to do that and have the best of both worlds? As you say, this, this chasing of identity through the consumer data fueled algorithmic society is never going to entirely satisfy us. We're never going entirely to, to find out who we are in that way. Are you hopeful we will be able to build other ways in a world of Google and Facebook where these powers and this system feels so all-encompassing sometimes? Can we, can we build something that's an alternative to that? I think we can. I mean, I'm always hopeful in the medium and long term. But I think we're really at a crux now where we can make decisions that could make a big difference because of the, because the pandemic kind of threw us forward into this social experiment. It was like, here's your free sample of how your life could be in 20 years' time if trends continue, and do you like that? And I think a lot of us have gone, actually, no, I don't like that. I, it's made me value in-person interactions. It's made me value shared experiences much more. Like, you know, today being here with an audience, the audience is as much part of an event as the people on the stage, whether that's a talk or a, an arts event or even a sporting event and I think we have had a taste by having that taken away of why it's valuable but I think what really needs to happen is we need to stop saying oh look it's the technology making us do this we need to say you know I'm, I'm a human I can choose when to use technology and when not to use it I can choose how to use it and as I said in the talk like you can you can draw up a map on your phone and look at a map and use that to find where you're going you don't have to let the phone choose the route and guide you step to step so that you switch off from the world you're walking through and only look at your phone. You can choose how to use the technology. And I think that's a good metaphor. You know, we can all choose to use technology to stay in touch with people, to have conversations, but we don't have to use it to insulate us from people and from risky situations. I mean, socially risky, I mean, like having conversations that are unscripted and talking to strangers. So it's really up to us. We have a great opportunity right now to uh, turn the wheel a bit and get this oil tanker moving in a slightly different direction. Okay, fantastic. Tamandra, thank you so much. There is one more thing I'm going to ask you to do before we leave this place. 
If it's involving a trapeze, I'm really out of training. <laughs> There's no trapezing unless you want there to be. Sounds like you don't. But I want to take you on a journey to planet next one. Imagine this. It is the near future. There is an acute crisis on planet Earth, which is not so hard to imagine these days. Amid that crisis, a team of scientists have hit upon a daring plan. They want to travel with a thousand specially selected pioneers far beyond the solar system to the planet next one. And there they are going to build a permanent base for human beings, a new home for humanity, a new society. Because of your achievements in the realms of trapeze, comedy and technology, you have been selected to be one of those pioneers. Before you board the rocket, there are five questions that you need to answer. And the first question I would like you to answer is name one luxury object that you would like to take with you to Planet Next One. So something that is not essential to keep us all alive on the new planet. That's right. I think I would take some pencils and a pad of nice rough paper because I think to be able to draw, I find a really helpful way of being able to see things in a different way. You have to pay attention to things in a different way when you draw. I'm not saying that any of my drawings would be worth putting on the wall of the space station, but for my thought process, to be able to look at things purely in terms of what's visually going on and put that down and capture it on paper, I find really helpful as a different way of looking at the world, a different way of thinking about things. I totally relate to that because I don't think I can really think still without a pen in my hand. If I want to have proper thinking time, I need to hold a pen. Thank you. So that is yours. That is done. Now, question number two, name one exceptional person you would like to join you on the rocket ship. Your loved ones are already coming with you, so that's fine. You don't have to worry about them. But someone else you'd like to take. I'm not sure I can name a specific person, but I know what I would want from a person is somebody that I like and respect but who usually disagrees with me because I've been very lucky in my life to meet a lot of people who would always argue with me uh, people with a very wide range of opinions so I can always know that whatever I think there will be one of my friends who disagrees with me and that has really helped me be more rigorous in my thinking because anytime I think something I think oh yeah but then that person would disagree so how would I argue with them because they're not going to let me get away with just saying oh that's what I think so I don't know who that person is I might have to go and look for them but somebody who you can have a respectful and friendly argument with but who basically takes the opposite position to me on a lot of topics so that I could never sit there and go oh well I just I just feel I'm right about this and uh, nobody's going to argue with me so there'll always be somebody there going ah oh, but what about this I think that's a wonderful idea and you can argue to your heart's content with this person on the long voyage out to planet next one. There will be no danger of an, a troubling outbreak of agreement for you on the journey. Okay, question number three. This is a tricky one. Tell us a law that bans something from next one forever. Ooh, now that's really hard because I'm quite libertarian by instinct. So I tend to think you should only ban things if they are really obviously harmful to other people. And in many cases, I even think maybe you have to weigh up the harm against the, the harms of banning something. 
Am I allowed to have a law that bans using being offended as a reason to ban something? Absolutely. So you could ban something for like road safety or, or food safety or something, but nobody could ever say, well, I find that song or picture or opinion offensive and therefore it must be banned. So it's like a meta ban, a ban of using offence to ban. I think that's a great idea and it echoes another of my favourite answers to this question. Essentially the same answer, Payal Aurora, who banned bans. She said, yeah, we, we, you know, banning is not the way I want to go. Um, no bans. I'm with her. Yeah. I, I could just add my vote to hers. Really. Okay, fair enough. Uh, yeah, so let's ban bans on next one. Okay, question number four. Tell us about a tradition from planet Earth that you'd love to see replicated in your new home. My first instinct is to say Christmas because I love Christmas and it, it was always a very big thing with my family growing up, really a high point of the year. And in a good way, I know for a lot of people, Christmas is really fraught because there's a lot of pressure and actually it becomes just family arguments. But uh, I was lucky enough, we just grew up with the, with the fun bits and the the warm, happy bits and not the others. But I do think if we're taking a whole thousand people, we need something that brings everyone together in the way that Christmas did for my family when I grew up. So I think perhaps we need to take the tradition of a festival at the darkest point of the year with love and presents and food and lights and a general sense of new beginnings and hope in the future and the fact that you're just at the darkest point and things will come lighter. Because I'm assuming whatever planet this is will have some kind of seasonal variation. I think that's safe to assume. So, so I'm going to go for a midwinter festival and then we use the geography of the new planet and whatever is there and whatever food we have and we create our new traditions around that general theme of hope and rebirth and light after darkness. And may I suggest the name Nextmas? For this, you may. <laughs> for this, uh, for this wonderful <laughs> festival of light and rebirth, Christmas nextmas. Yeah, I can see where you're going. You can with see that. where let's I'm coming from. Let's put it to a focus group. Yeah. Okay. Let's ask the thousand pioneers, of which you will be one, and your argumentative friend. Um, final question to Mandra: What book? would you like to take with you? I know we live in an age of digital books and endless access to books. So it can be a book. If you'd like, it can be a film or a painting. Work of art that you'd like to take with you to next one. Ooh, that's really hard. I actually still really like physical books. I, I, find, I find them easier to read. And I also like to write in pencil in the margins, which you can't... I know you can with a digital book, but I've never worked out how to do it. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of the physical book. And I, there's something durable about them that I like, that they, their meaning changes down the generations, even while the words stay the same. So although I'm tempted to take a film or a piece of music, I'm going to take a book by Italo Calvino called Invisible Cities. And it's the book that I have given to m most people in life, I think, more than any other book. It's quite poetic, and he describes imaginary cities all of which are in some way a metaphor for Venice. But just the act of describing them makes you imagine all these places. And I think that would be a help in starting a new world on a new world, to imagine different ways that cities might be. Not that you would use any of them as a blueprint, but just that it would remind you that 
there are many, many ways of humans living together in cities and many very imaginative ways of seeing your physical environment beyond just the practical things of we need plumbing and we need energy and we need to keep warm and we need to keep dry. Fantastic. I think that's a very wise choice. There will be a lot to build on next one. I'm not sure how developed it is yet. I've heard that there's a lot to do. Timondra Harkness, thank you so much for answering our five next one questions. Please feel free to board the ship whenever you like. Enjoy the journey. And thank you too for speaking to us today. It's been a fascinating conversation. The book is called The Personalised Century. Possibly, although I'm still writing it, it might be called Recognised. I see. Or something else entirely. And when can readers get their hands on that Well, book? I have to finish writing it first, so it's going to be another couple of years. I think probably it will come out in 2023. OK. Everyone, keep your eyes peeled for that book by Timandra Harkness in a couple of years' time. Timandra, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thanks for talking to me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.